0: Thank you for listening. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit the Hay Player at hayfestival.org. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Starlight Stage. This afternoon's talk, Demystifying the Social Robot, is given in association with Cambridge University. I expect that we'll find the truth lies somewhere between the dystopian and the utopian representations of robotics that we encounter in the media. Um, It's my pleasure to introduce to you the Senior Lecturer at the University of Cambridge Computer Laboratory, who's here to offer an informed and balanced view of what's in store for us. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Hatija Gunesh.
1: Thank you very much, Um, so actually I changed the title a bit, instead of the social I call it human-like robots, we discussed this with the organisers in Cambridge and human-like sounded a bit more accessible to the general public but uh, basically uh, I will be covering the, the topics that relate to both. So uh, basically I would like to start with some <laughs> images that you see in media or on TV when it comes to human-like robots. And you end up seeing things like this uh, from various movies or even uh, nowadays on Netflix or series. And this is the impression we are getting. It's this army of robots that are coming to take over the world and uh, you know, they're competing with humanity somehow or they're going to destroy us. Um, And today, I would like to give a more sort of a balanced view or a view from the research perspective so that you can get a balanced view (laughs) in between the two things as mentioned by Pete as well. And I would like to start with uh, what we call the field of human-robot interaction because this very much relates to this research field. And what this field is about is um, it aims to create uh, design robots that can engage humans in various tasks. And these tasks can be in different contexts, different applications, so for learning, uh, even collaboration at work, or they can be also used for assisting even in restaurants uh, as waiters. Uh, This is an example from Japan. Or museum guides to entertain and engage children. But even further, uh, you probably started hearing about flying robots or drones, At the moment, they are not autonomous, but it's possible uh, that uh, they can even become, for instance, fitness instructors. So there's a lot of potential there. (laughs) I would like to ground my talk around this concept of believability. And indeed, this has been the motivation for creating, first of all, virtual characters, and more recently, uh, human-like or social robots. And here I put the definition what we mean by believable. is basically a character or a situation that's convincing and that's realistic. And to be able to engage people in all of these different tasks that I mentioned, we need them to be, belie- to be believable. And I'll try to explain how we can create that, or how the research has focused on creating believable characters. So two things are very important. Appearance is really important, and appearance can go from very mechanical looking, like this, to more animal looking or zoomorphic, where, for instance, such robots have been trying to play football. Uh, And then human looking. Here also they're playing football (laughs) in their human uh, appearance. And then the second thing that's important is behavior. And obviously the behavior should match the appearance to make them believable. One example is here the paro-robot, which is a seal-like looking robot. So it has the look of an animal, and therefore the behavior is this this way as well. So it purrs when it's uh, touched or patted, creates certain vibrations. And if it's a human-like appearance uh, robot, then of course we expect the robot to behave that way as well, to hold its body, have arms or gesture, hold things. These are the really important aspects. But beyond that, what really is important is this emotional expressivity. It's really key in believability. And this also relates to the famous Disney characters. In fact, uh, we can even say the inspiration comes from such uh, applications in various areas, but it has been very well used by Disney. And here I'm quoting uh, Thomas and Johnston, it has been the portrayal of emotions that has given the Disney characters the illusion of life. So this emotional expressivity is really the key. And here I'm going to give an example. So it's not Disney, this time it's from Pixar. Maybe some of you have seen it. It's called Inside Out. Uh, it's sort of a cartoon movie about a little girl in the U.S. whose family migrates or goes from, uh, moves from one city to another. And she has to go through these various emotions. And these are these five personified emotions. So joy, sadness, anger, fear, and disgust you can already start applying the concept I mentioned to you in terms of appearance, so you can start uh, guessing which of these characters is joy, based on the appearance, or which of them is anger or fear, if you haven't seen already the cartoon. But not only that, even though this is just a static image or static frame, you can also start seeing, because they are showing some gesturing or expressivity even in the static frame, so you can use also the behavior aspect to start guessing which one is, again, fear or disgust. So this is a good example of how such believable characters are created by Disney or Pixar. So when it comes to agents and robots with emotions, as we said, it really helps with increasing believability. It engages the user as well, having them that way. But also, they can personalize and adapt to the user. And this is still an ongoing research, actually. So next thing I would like to start focusing on is emotional intelligence because emotional expressivity directly relates to this. And emotional intelligence, I would like to cover it in terms of this artificial emotional intelligence, which has, of course, inspirations from the human emotional intelligence. So what emotional intelligence has is these three aspects, so it needs to have these um, features. The first one is Artificial Emotional Intelligence should be able to evoke expressions or draw, some, uh, draw out some reaction in humans or human users. Uh, the second is uh, it should be able to express emotions that can be identified by humans. So when we talk about these art, uh, virtual characters or robots, they should be able to express emotions themselves. And the last bit is they should be able to, what we call automatically, is autonomously also understand or interpret what humans are expressing. That way, we can close the loop in the interaction. And I'll give a bit more further examples about this. So I will start with evoking expressions, the first part of this artificial emotional intelligence. And I will start the example, first of all, with virtual characters, because this is also how I came to this field. Uh, I worked first with virtual characters. This was part of an EU project which finished a long time ago, actually, um, almost seven years ago, in 2011. And what we created was sensitive artificial listeners. So at the time, there was no, actually, automatic uh, system for virtual characters where they could autonomously, fully automatically engage the user in a conversation based on interpreting and analyzing their non-verbal behaviors. So this is what we set out to do. And the idea here was we had four characters, and each one of them had a different name, so Poppy, Spike, Ubadai, and Prudence. They have their own personality as well. You can start again applying the the rules I mentioned, and they have their own expressivity and emotional mood. And they're trying to draw the person into their own mood. That was the goal. And the idea would be just based on uh, understanding non-verbal behaviors of the people. Not really understanding what the person says, but whether the person talks, whether there are silences, whether the person nods their head, smiles, and so on. That was the idea. I will open up the system here a little bit more. Hopefully it's not getting too technical. Um, but how this whole thing works, because I'm trying to demystify how these systems work. So we first need to be able to sense, when I say we, of course, the, the system needs to be, First of all, be able to sense the human user, and this needs to be done via sensors. In this case, we have microphone and camera. And then, once this is uh, obtained, then we need to extract some meaningful features, meaningful for the computer or the system to analyze. Uh, for instance, detecting where the face is, detecting some of the facial features, whether there's a you know from these facial features going higher level interpretation. Uh, combining information from both channels, and then coming with an interpretation of whether the person is shaking their head, nodding their head, whether they're smiling, and then whether they're feeling positive or negative. And after this, the second part of the system would then choose an appropriate behavior for the virtual character to be played, based on the state of the user. And then this would be played, and the interaction would keep going. So this is what we call closed-loop interaction. And uh, here's a, an example. Uh, hopefully the, hmm, I'm not sure if, oops. The video used to work, but.
0: Hello, <laughs> Spike. What's your problem?
1: Can you hear? Hopefully. Yes.
0: Tell me about it.
1: <laughs> well, you know nothing's going. I suppose you wrong. really
0: think you're something. No, not really. How can you believe that?
1: Quite easily. I'm not up myself. I'm not spoiled. So I'll just pause it. So here, in fact, they're face to face, but for your convenience, we're placing them side by side. So the person is seeing the virtual character on the screen and she's wearing a microphone just like I do, and there's a camera. That's how, actually, she's being sensed. And that's, you know, the virtual character behavior is played on the other side. So she's showing certain behavior. And then, of course, as I mentioned, the virtual character has its own goal. He's the angry character, so he's trying to make her angry. And I'll continue playing so you actually start noticing how he manages to do that. He tries to show opposing behavior. And when she nods, just maybe take care. When she nods her head, he tries to shake his head and oppose what she's saying.
0: Well, okay, I man. think you're wrong to be so pragmatic about it all.
1: Really? Well, you're not always right. I'm not always right.
0: So. hmm. hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> mm. I think you're too mm. harsh. You have to sit back and just, you know...
0: Go for it.
1: Yeah, just try and chill, see the world. Yeah. (laughs) Less angry eyes. (laughs) So this keeps going, and I will not play the the full video. I have other videos for different ones. But this is a good example where the system tries to evoke expressions uh, in in the users as part of this artificial emotional intelligence. The second part that I'll touch upon is the... Uh, characters or robots expressing emotions themselves, and Spike was doing, of course, some of these aspects. But I would like to now um, focus more in terms of robots and uh, how expressivity helps with robots. So emotional expression uh, for robots is really, as part of this making them believable, but also more engaging and uh, intuitive. That's the idea. of course it's grounded in uh, various other research domains, so human-robot interaction itself did not come up with this. There are many pioneers, Charles Darwin was one of them, who looked at expressivity in animals, how animals expressed emotions with their face, body, then humans as well, so he was one of the pioneers. And uh, he said that emotions were actually motivating behavior to solve evolutionary problems. That was his approach. But since then, emotion research has evolved a lot, and researchers found that emotions are always there, even if we are not aware. So we always feel something, and it affects our attention, our decision-making, our learning, all of these things. So how do we express emotions? Emotions can be expressed in many ways, of course. So physiologically as well, like heartbeat and breathing rate and all of this. Uh, But the most prominent channel is really this uh, visual channel in social settings. So we can express using our body, you know, posture, gesture, but the face is the most prominent channel we have for expressing emotions. And here you see these six basic emotions that was the first most commonly accepted theory of universality of emotions by Ekman and Friesen who said that there is these six basic uh, expressions of emotions, fear, anger, sadness, disgust, joy, and surprise, that can be recognized universally all around the world. And this has been also very commonly used in computer science literature as well. But the problem is, of course, in daily life, we don't have only six basic emotions, and not every emotion has a distinctive sort of uh, configuration like you saw in the previous slide. For instance, awe can be expressed in different ways, or guilt, or shame, so therefore, the next step they came up with is they came up with this thing called facial action coding system. The idea was to code every muscle movement of the face in terms of action units. So these atomic movements by already separating the emotional interpretation. And they came up with 44 action units. For instance, uh, raising the inner eyebrow up would be action unit one. Raising the outer eyebrow up would be action unit two. And if I raise both of them, that's action unit 1 plus 2. So we have this configuration, very objective way of labeling the movements. But of course, from there, you can also go to interpretation. So if I raise both of eyebrows, you can say, oh, that's a surprise. So we can also create such rules for interpreting the emotional expressions. And the human-robot interaction research, take up, they also took up this notion And some of the early prototypes used these six basic emotions and the configuration. So here you're seeing Cosmet, a robot by MIT in the early 90s. Then Philips iCat also used this, uh, creating the six basic emotions. And more recently, the body started becoming more important as well. So we start seeing expressivity through the body. But additionally, even light or sound is being used now. Uh, when uh, the robots are expressing emotions. Now the third part is automatically detecting emotions of humans. Remember, to be able to close the interaction loop, uh, they need to be able to detect how humans uh, feel. And here I will try to, similar to the previous figure, but I'll try to open up a bit more. As I said, if you remember, we need to first sense the human uh, user. And we can do this with various sensors. Uh, here I have additionally tactile or even biosignal processing. It doesn't have to be the brain, but nowadays we have very small sensors that can be even on your watch uh, that you know, measure even your sweatiness or electrodermal activity of the skin, and those can be used as well. So then, step by step, what we need to do for creating an automatic analyzer is we need, of course, to ground ourselves in the background research, what we call. So what psychologists have found, similar to the spatial action coding system. Then we need data. And the uh, automatic systems rely on a lot of data. So we need a lot of data. This data sh- ideally should be labeled or annotated. So we need to know whether there is a smile or a head note. Then we need to dis- do this feature extraction part, so meaningful features for the computers and then machine learning to be able to come up with these automatic interpretations. So when we get to this level, we can say, OK, the person is smiling, but what sort of a smile is this? And this is the tricky question. And that's where we need to be able to understand the context. And that's still very difficult. Context means not only knowing what the person is showing in terms of expressions, but, OK, who are they? Where are they? What are they doing? What is their task? With whom are they? Uh, Why they're doing this so as much as you know, we can gather such information then we can say okay This is a smile of embarrassment or this is a smile of happiness and that sort of interpretation then can help us to create this context-sensitive responding on the robot side and That's what we would again call here closed-loop interaction So here I'll give you an example of some of these things we used for um, As part of actually uh, mostly um, public engagement because it's uh, easier to have this in the context of a game. So this was a game called Teach Me Emotional Intelligence. The idea was the user would show certain expressions to the robot so that the robot can learn uh, about expressions and action units. And this was uh, done in a fully automatic manner. So I will try to.
0: As far well as you do, can you teach me how to make a facial gesture by smiling, blinking, mm-hmm. frowning, or looking surprised? Take a moment to decide what it is and then we can begin. One, two, three.
1: <laughs>
0: Wait a second. I am trying to be 74 gestures. <laughs> you are lowering
1: your eyebrows. Let me analyze your expression. Understand? You If yes, push
0: my orange toe to your right. If no, push my orange toe to your left. Yes, that's great. I'm getting better
1: at this. So this is a good example. So we demonstrated this in various places. The second aspect I would like to touch upon uh, in terms of creating believable characters is personality. And personality is actually... Um, really important, as important as emotions perhaps, because it's really important in terms of creating this very well-defined narrative, but also role for the characters or the robots. And it is important for believability, but also it it sort of creates this binding for the rest of the behavior, even for the emotions, because we expect certain personality type of people to be more expressive or to have intense emotions or intense expressions compared to the other personality types. So it really helps with this binding process of of the um, behavior. So going back to our original example of this inside-out, so now try to look at them in terms of personality, not only emotions. I'll give you some clues from uh, social science research or psychology research that states that extrovert characters actually speak, uh, they have expansive gestures, speak louder uh, compared to introverted characters. So you can start also guessing which of these characters would be the more extrovert and which one would be more introverted. So that's how we would convey personality. There are many models for modeling personality, just like I mentioned for emotions, for personality there are various ones. The most commonly used one for computer science literature is this big five model of personality. And here, the idea is that we all can be uh, put or analyzed along these five dimensions of extraversion, agreeableness, conscientiousness, neuroticism and openness. But it's a spectrum, so we can be anywhere along these dimensions. And the way we do judgments about personalities, everything matters. So our behavior, the way we speak, what we say, uh, the way we express, uh, intonation, all of these things contribute to the judgments. So why, then, we would like to use this for human-robot interaction? What's the motivation? Well, the idea would be to actually be able to come up with appropriate personality for the situation, the application, the task, and the person. So I'll give some examples. For instance, if it's a tutoring system, it might need need to be a conscientious uh, robot. But if it's a a counseling service, that it might need to have more agreeableness uh, characteristics. We looked at this via various projects. So I'll briefly just cover some. Uh, This is quite a complex one, but uh, it's quite similar to what I explained when it came to the emotion analysis system. So again, we have user data, and we have a feature extraction in this bit, and then we have machine learning, to be able to analyze and automatically interpret the personality. We also use this for public engagement, where the person would interact with the robot, and at the end of the interaction, the robot would come up with uh, percentages of how extroverted the person has been throughout the interaction. And (laughs) we demonstrated this also in various occasions. And if you're more academically inclined, we have some papers on this, which I'm not going to go into details. But what I would like to go a bit more in detail about uh, this aspect of personalities, telepresence robotics, and how we have uh, investigated it in this context. This was part of another project with multiple partners, EPSRC project, where the idea was analyzing the personality of robot avatar teleoperators. And I would like to show you, first of all, what I mean by uh, humanoid robot avatars. So this time, we are not talking about autonomous robots, so they do not really automatically analyze and respond to be able to have this closed-loop interaction. Instead, here, they're replicating exactly what the human does. So it's not autonomous at all, so it's teleoperated, meaning all the behavior, possibly the gestures and the sound, is replicated on the robot side. And this is, uh, here, it's done via the person wearing a virtual headset, so the person sees through the robot's eyes, and when uh, she turns the head, moves the arm, this is reproduced on the robot. Why do we need this? It actually helps as an alternative means of communication, particularly when people are not co-located, so when there's physical distance. This has been shown already for groups that work um, remotely, when they're not physically in the same uh, place, this, engage, uh, uh, this affects their engagement and trust levels. So, some physical presence via robot could contribute and help with uh, remote home care and tele nursing. There's already research ongoing in this area. So, this is one of the applications. So, what we did was we wanted to see the perception of uh, personality when people were teleoperating robots. Because, of course, if we start using them in this way, via teleoperation, we need to ask this question of, Okay, but how is the person perceived through the robot? Because the person is not physically there. The physical aspects are recreated on the robot. And how does the perception uh, work by other humans around it? So what we did was, in this study, we have the human teleoperator, as you saw in previous slides, in another room. And uh, in the second room, this uh, person is represented through the robot. And the person sees through the robot's eyes by wearing this uh, virtual headset. And here, the interaction is uh, happening. It's a task-based interaction. And we looked at various tasks, like informative, competitive, or cooperative interaction. And I'll show you one example. I think that's very important. The mirror for signaling, yeah. Second, do you think? Yeah, sure. Okay. So that's a a collaborative interaction. So we did this study with multiple people, and the next step was to have this data of the person, first of all, oops, first of all, as they are, so in their own form, audiovisually, and then when they're represented as a robot. So we call these different conditions, and then we asked independent observers. To actually provide us their perception of personality when they viewed the person, either in robot form or in their own form. So we did this via crowdsourcing. And of course, there's a lot of details and analysis. I will not go into that much detail, but what we found is that when people were uh, shown in their robot form, there was a change in the perception. So, particularly, there was a decrease in in their agreeableness, conscientiousness, and openness level in terms of the perception. So when they were in robot form, they were seen as less agreeable, less conscientious, and less open. Um, Of course, there are various uh, ways of looking at this, and and, uh, we need to do further studies to understand why this is the case. But one of the hypotheses is that uh, we apply certain stereotypes to to robots when we are, of course, perceiving the person through the robot. So there is a robotic appearance and therefore it's seen as less trustworthy and that affects the low agreeableness. So this is one aspect. And based on our analysis, we also came up with um, design suggestions when it comes to creating autonomous or tele-operated robots. So task is really important. You know how we say in real life, oh, the personality doesn't change. The person is the way they are. But it actually, when it comes to this particular case uh, via robots, the task is really important. Depending on the task, your personality uh, will be perceived differently. So we need to take this into account. Appearance is very important. So the robot we use was now. You can see this in comparison to other robots around, how small it is, so it's more like a child-looking robot. But if it's a male or female-looking robot, the perception would change. So the... Appearance really matters, and if we want to actually go beyond the appearance, then we need to have very strong behavioral cues. And how this can be done is we need to consider, uh, case by case, the user. So we might need to adapt based on who the user is, who the teleoperator of the robot is, and sometimes we might need to even do automatic analysis of their gestures. For instance, if the person is extrovert, but for the particular task they need to be portrayed as introvert for this case, we might need to do adaptation via the automatic system. So not everything is directly reproduced, but there is some level of adaptation. That would be the idea. So now, moving from all of these uh, examples, I'll try to touch upon the challenges and limitations. So all of this relates to uh, human-human interaction, and in human-human interaction, nonverbal social signals are really important. So we have this sender side of these social signals and the receiver side. And we are conscious or not, we constantly actually are evaluating um, the signals we are receiving from the sender side. And this is done at different levels for different purposes, even in terms of, for instance, the trust, um, in terms of forming impressions. And of course, when we start replacing this, either the receiver end or the sender end with a robot, there are many, many open questions, and uh, we need a lot of research to really understand how this affects the perception, the interaction, the believability, the trustworthiness. So uh, a lot of uh, things, challenges to be addressed there. Um, some of the things uh, in terms of challenges from robot side is that robots are appearance-constrained. So sometimes, as I showed examples, they look like humans, but they're not really like humans and sometimes they would have a static phase, so these features cannot move, but lights are being changed to express things. There are also behavior constraints, so they're still quite mechanic or mechanical, the way they move, and they're slower. There are also power constraints, so we don't have robots that can operate nonstop, 24-7, constantly doing automatic analysis and being able to respond. We are very still uh, a bit far from this. The other limitations, now I would like to touch upon a bit more at the public level. Uh, This was highlighted by Ben Russell. We were uh, in the conference last year, so he was one of the speakers. He is the uh, curator of Science Museum's uh, 500 Years of History of Robotics. That took place last year in the Science Museum. What he found is that, so there they showed everything from the history, how it all started 500 years ago, how humanity's interest was in robotics, and then ended up with the latest technology that they called Imagine. But when people came to the last part of the latest robotic technology, they were so disappointed. <laughs> they couldn't believe this is the real thing, because, you know, that's not what they see in the movies or in, in, on Netflix. And they had a visitor's notebook, and he even showed some of the comments people, people put there. And what he said is, he realized, basically, that public expectation is hugely different from reality. It's, uh, they, people think they're much more capable than they really are, so when they meet them, there, they can't believe this is the real thing. And expectations are really driven by sci-fi. So they had to, in fact, modify the exhibition a little bit. They started having volunteers walking around and trying to talk to people to explain how difficult this whole field is, rather than just letting people go through the exhibition. So this is one example. The other one is Sophia the robot, you might have seen in the news, and this was also very much sensationalized. And uh, because also she's very human looking, so to say, by Hanson Robotics, but in fact, People who really know the state of the technology have also criticized. And this doesn't become mainstream media, of course. <laughs> the criticism is not. Usually you just see the videos and how she looks so real. But in fact, uh, people who are in AI or artificial intelligence say she's more like a chatbot, doesn't really have a sense of, you know, uh, what, uh, what she's doing or this, what the situation is, and more like Wizard of Oz AI, what we call it, which means Almost like someone is teleoperating her, not really fully autonomous. So, there has been a lot of criticism. So, we, we have to be aware of these limitations. So, now from limitations, I will come to this part where I call meteor reality. And these, some of those I actually gathered from my own talks when people were asking me questions. And I'm curious today what <laughs> you will be asking. I might add those also to my meteor reality list. So, I will show some perceptions I I experience from people and what the reality from science perspective is so the perception is people love or hate robots so this is one thing that comes up quite uh, frequently but reality is that people actually don't know about robots so when we were doing some of the uh, science communication or public engagement events sometimes people were for the first time seeing a robot really you know talking or acting or analyzing what they do. So this was their first encounter. What we call this is a novelty effect, which means because uh, their robots are not common, they're not as common as mobile phones or other things we own, they're still very much mystified. And because we are watching mostly movies and sci-fi movies and and, uh, um, Netflix, when you actually meet one, it's a bit of a challenge because you have all these expectations and you're talking to a robot right now. So there's this novelty effect which doesn't allow you to be quite open and see the, almost the defects of, of possibly that robot. So this would change if you keep interacting for some time. And also people apply heuristics from interactions with people. So they, they don't really just interact with the robot, they're bringing all these projections from their own interactions uh, with people. Next one is, we don't need robots. So this was, uh, also came up quite a few times, because if we would like to use them for coaching or training, we can use virtual characters. But reality is that robots bring something different. So they bring this physical embodiment or the physical aspect. And this really matters for certain interactions, particularly, for instance, with kids diagnosed with autism, or in general, kids are more tactile, so the physical appearance really helps, it matters. But also for elderly care as well, for stimulation, for instance. Another perception robots should not be designed to look human like. This comes quite a lot as well because I talk about human like robots. And people say, oh, you know, it's uh, deceiving why they should look like humans. The reality is, we have, as humans, we are very good at anthropomorphizing everything. So even if there's no human appearance, and I will show you a video. Um, Have a look and then I'll talk over it. So this is from 1944, an experiment done then, about how we do the attribution process when making judgments. You see only two triangles and a circle. But you start making judgments about their emotions, their personality, how they are, So there is no human appearance at all here. And uh, we seem to do this with a lot of things. So Stanford researchers came up with this um, media equation theory. And they stated that people tend to treat technology as if they were real humans or people. So one example is the SatNav. So it's a voice technology. There is no appearance at all. But already, we start attributing gender to this voice technology. We start attributing certain stereotypes we have from real life. So this is how our sort of uh, perception and uh, and behavior tends to work. And this is one example where the robot is not human-like at all. Is one of the most recent ones. But as soon as it displays certain actions, we start saying, oh, this is anti- anti- anticipation pose, this is action pose, and so on. Another perception is robots cannot have emotions. So this also comes up quite a lot because I talk about emotions. And the reality is actually they most li- <laughs> likely can. And this is a bit controversial to say. But if we understand how emotions are Uh, analyze in terms of science and how they are the effect of low-level instinctive drives and anticipation of rewards, then we can claim that we can recreate this on the robots. So this is one model of uh, emotions called the appraisal theory, or the appraisal model of emotions, which uh, states that what comes as a certain emotion, in this case fear, It depends on a lot of different aspects, dimensions, that uh, we are constantly sort of analyzing, like goal congruence, so if it's in accordance with our goals or not, expectations, whether we can cope with the situation, coping potential, whether it's relevant to our goals, whether it's novel, we were expecting or not, so all of these things. And we can create such uh, measures on the robot side, and therefore can synthesize or come up with certain emotions. Another perception. Robots should not be portrayed as expressing emotions because they cannot feel. And here I have two arguments in terms of reality. First one is, humans, uh, we humans, don't always express what we feel, actually. (laughs) And one example, this comes from um, MIT in the US, where they show that even when we are frustrated, we smile. (laughs) So we don't really portray what we feel. And here you can see, when the person is really happy, this is the sort of expression they're showing. When the person is frustrated, this is the sh- uh, sort of expression they're showing. So this is one example. The second uh, argument I have is we still don't have a way of understanding what emotional intelligence would be like when it is not human, so when it's artificial. So far, we are always using inspirations from human-human interactions, but actually there is still a lot of open areas to, to um explore there. So, for instance, already Skype is using some level of emotional intelligence without any physical appearance, but attributing, for instance, apologizing with, a, with an emoticon or face here when they could not do certain things. Facebook is the same, so they also show a certain level of emotional intelligence. Twitter as well. So there is a lot to explore there. Another perception, If robots have emotions, they should be the same as human emotions. Um, Well, actually, there's no reason for robots to have all the spectrum of human emotions. For instance, you know, why we would need the robot to have jealousy. Uh, So it's possible to actually code uh, on robots a certain level of altruism rather than saying, oh, they should reproduce exactly like humans are doing. So, busting the myths, and I'll try to wrap up with this, what you can do to actually bust the myths. Uh, my suggestion is that you question what you read and watch, particularly the examples I gave like Sophia or even the movies you're watching. And attend realistic exhibitions and talks like you're doing right now. <laughs> but also if there are demos, uh, try out for yourself what the technology is like. Go and, uh, and see the real thing rather than just watching. But also get uh, involved uh, and start local initiatives. Uh, because this can help steer governance and uh, hopefully in the best of uh, the interests of the society. This is one example from a friend of mine who is based in Sydney. So she was so worried that uh, automation is changing the way uh, the life is being lived for her children, she started actually a local um, initiative and then workshops to discuss this, so what they can do as parents, how they can prepare their children for the future where everything is getting automated. This is another prominent name in the field of AI, and he says we need to find the jobs that AI can't do and train people to do them. We need to reinvent education, so we need to start thinking differently. Another example where this is an institute specifically focusing on science and and religion, and even they're questioning (laughs) what is it that robots, where do robots stand when it comes to from this perspective that they have about religion and science. Another aspect to consider is be aware of the gender and race gap uh, in in all of these areas related to artificial intelligence. What this means is, like all the technologies before it, AI will reflect the values, at least initially, of its creators. So it's a very much still male-dominated field, uh, mostly driven by certain countries. And therefore, of course, there will be some gap there. So you have to be aware of that as well. What we can do, or we are trying to do from our side, is okay, public engagement and science communication, really trying to inform and empower people, because we really need the general public to become a bit more technology-literate. It doesn't mean you have to study computer science or code, but you have to be able to question things a bit deeper than, than they appear. And the most important one is really, robots need to be more accessible to be able to demystify them. You need to see them with their own full capacity and capability. So the future we want, the the envisioned future we have, is really one of collaboration and cooperation. So there's a lot of potential from the robot side. They can be used for learning, education, guiding museums and shopping malls, but also therapeutic stimulation, companion in various uh, contexts. This is one example. It was an EU project for kids that uh, had diabetes. The idea was they would take care of a robot with diabetes, and by doing this, they would learn how to take care of themselves. So, there are a lot of uh, various contexts that robots can be used in, in very engaging ways. And even in uh, culture and arts, I have seen myself, for instance, this particular play. Only two actors here this lady and a robot, in this case, was teleoperated. But you can start seeing this was another example in terms of dance. So there's a lot of potential even in terms of culture and dance. So we envision a future where jobs become less hazardous and of higher value because hopefully robots can help us do the manual tasks and repetitive tasks. Um, And we also envision a future of collaboration and co-evolution, but to do that, We also need to start changing ourselves a bit. So lifelong learning becomes really important instead of sticking with very static roles. Um, This is uh, suggested to be the most important task, so we we keep on evolving ourselves and create a bundle of skills rather than sticking with uh, very static roles. And then robots becoming more integrated, almost as common as mobile phones, not necessarily in the form that you have seen here, the examples I gave. We can't envision exactly how they will look like and how that will be. But uh, that's the envision feature. So really operating side by side with us, that would be the idea. These are some of the projects I'm working on now. So really, well-being is becoming important for me. Um, I got a, a big grant again, thanks to EPSRC, uh, for focusing on adaptive robotic emotional intelligence for well-being. So that's where I'm heading and I'm passionate about. And I'd like to thank my team <laughs> and thank you very much. <laughs> um, yes, so would you like me to point or you can take the microphone? Yes. Yeah, yes please. Microphone is not on yet.
0: Thank thank you so much. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the side of the robot that senses. Mm -hmm. And we know that we have speech recognition now. We know that we have image recognition. So first of all, what data sets do you use to start sensing what emotions are coming in? Mm And then, uh, where are the constraints? Is it the size of the data set? Is it real-time computing power? And lastly, Mm -hmm. how long before computers, uh, the the robot or the computer can really sense what emotion I'm feeling as a human being Mm -hmm. and can respond in a contingent way?
1: Yeah. So you might have to remind me because there are multiple things there. (laughs) So it's more like three, four questions. Uh, So in terms of data sets, that was the first one. So in terms of data sets, we have actually um, come a long way compared to the past, where they were very posed. Like the first examples I showed, six basic emotions, where people were really posing in an exaggerated manner. Nowadays, uh, we are able to gather, of course, with consent and ethics approval and so on, data from various contexts and more realistic data. And this is mostly... Uh, also done via challenges. So in the field of automatic facial expression recognition, we now organize challenge events, meaning we have uh, people coming together to compete to try to improve their recognition capability, working on same sort of uh, strictly defined conditions. So same data set, what they need to use and and things like that. Otherwise, everyone, if they use their own data set, is not comparable. So the reported results also are not realistic. So challenge events are really helpful. The same has been also for object recognition. This is how deep learning, in fact, became very famous. Because with challenge and competition events, people started actually comparing and seeing what realistically they were able to achieve. Initially, for emotion or expression recognition from audio uh, or, or from image, when it came to more noisy conditions, so not as clean like most it would be if I'm sitting and just smiling, it's not difficult to analyze this. But if I'm moving around like I'm doing right now, the lighting changes, it's dark, these people start talking, you're not hearing me very well. You know, we humans are still very good at that, despite the noise. But the systems, they would still struggle. So automation would still struggle with these changing, varying conditions. Uh, But I would say it's somewhere in between. So it's not as strictly as in the past, where you have to be very clean data, posed, not moving, not even moving your head. Mostly just keeping still and moving, smiling or, or surprised. Nowadays, we are able to analyze different viewpoints and even to some extent changing conditions. The second question I think was. Yes, okay. So on the robot side, because there is an automatic emotion analysis or expression analysis field itself, which is not done on the robot platform. So when it comes to putting all of this on the robot platform, of course, there is constraint of power, because robots do not have power to be able to run continuously. And doing image analysis requires a lot of computational power. So not all of the robots would have this. So sometimes people would use the cloud or additional power, so to say, to be able to maybe I sense the image, and then this needs to be analyzed elsewhere, and comes back to me so I can respond in an appropriate manner. there is some distribution of these tasks. So this can be done that way. Um, the limitation, of course, the more data we have, the better. So this comes also to the fact that there is cultural differences, of course, to th- the way people express. So if m- we mostly have data sets obtained uh, in certain cultures, like Western, let's say, then if we take this data Or models trained with this data elsewhere, they might not perform as well, because we might need to do this adaptation or or learning to transfer this particular way. So still, uh, we are not fully there, I would say. So we don't have an expression analyzer that would work anywhere, anytime, with anyone, all the time. Yeah. I would always uh, keep myself from making predictions because everyone who made predictions in the past were wrong, including Bill Gates, who said at some point we would I think he said something like two megabytes would be sufficient for blah blah years, which never held, so I wouldn't be able to make predictions, because in computing, none of those predictions (laughs) held so far, so I wouldn't want to be the person who said (laughs) And I think the last question was related to emotions, so we have to be very careful there. A robot might not be able to sense what you feel because even someone sitting next to you might not sense what you feel. We rely on the expressions. So one thing is what you feel inside. Another thing is what you show. And in social circumstances, I don't go and check your heartbeat or your brain signals. I rely on what you're showing in terms of audiovisually. So if I don't know you well, I might just rely if you're smiling, I would say, "Okay, you know, you're okay with what I'm saying, but inside maybe you're angry and I might not be able to do that. But your partner maybe could do because she knows your history. So it's the same with systems or robots. The idea is to interpret what you're showing externally, unless they also use additional sensors, which is mostly for medical domain. For instance, depression or uh, mental uh, health-related applications could rely on physiological signals. Like, a bre- you know, your, your, the way you're breathing, the heartbeat, or even sweatiness or skin conductivity. So it depends on the application. Yeah. Here. Okay.
0: Hi. Uh, thanks very much for a very interesting talk. I wanted to ask about when you come to design a robot or an avatar, it seems like you're almost between a rock and a hard place because you have to try and make it human enough for people to empathize with. At the same time, you can't make it too human like Hanson Robotics did with Sophia, and they sort of deceptively put it out on the TV and made it talk like a human being, so everyone is now confused about what AI and robots can do or not. But you've said that with the robots like Now and Pepper that people have uh, come up with that are humanoid, but sort of cartoon versions of humanoid, people are still assessing them as less trustworthy uh, than human equivalents on this sort of big five scale. So where would you stand in avoiding this kind of uncanny valley? Do we need to make them more humanoid than they are at the moment? Or do we need to rely on people's ability to anthropomorphize you know, st- and conceptualize a robots as something that's not human, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. that they can still interact with?
1: Excellent question, yeah. Thank you. So I would say we still don't know the answer because, uh, as I mentioned, robots are still not as available to the general public. Most of the studies that have been done, and the way we are doing as well, are still quite limited because you can't take the robots anywhere, anytime, and do really studies with everyone. So we are getting some of the initial results or initial ideas of how these things affect, actually. And I would say, as they become more and more available, just like mobile phones, in the beginning, only a few elites maybe owned it, or internet as well. Only few people had access, so people did not know. But then when people started really using the internet and utilizing, then certain challenges arise that need to be addressed and that changed. And other applications came, like Twitter, Facebook. So It's a bit similar to that. It's very difficult to know exactly where we should put that strict line or the threshold. We need to be able to first use them Mm -hmm. and understand what they're useful for. And and I would say, though, it will always depend on the application. Meaning, in certain situations, for instance, this has already initial studies show that if you start having very human-looking robots with autism spectrum people or children, it's very difficult for them to understand or analyze the expressions because this is what they struggle in real life anyway, because humans are unpredictable, and that's what makes them struggle. They they actually are more able to interpret more mechanical or expected behavior. So for them, more mechanical-looking or something in between would work better. So if you bring something like Sophia to them, that would just confuse or would even be more challenging because it's human-like, but it's not, it's quite, not quite. And bad, yeah. Yes. So... It, So it will depend on the application. And for instance, if it's uh, some of the examples I show was uh, just, you know, if it's stimulation, touch-related things, or just relaxing, maybe with certain, this has been also shown in in other studies, with certain um, um, mechanical behavior like pulsation that can calm your your breathing level down and so on. You might just need a pet-looking robot. You might not need Sophia-like robots. So it will be very application uh, task dependent. That's what I would expect, but we are not fully informed yet to be able to say this is where it should be. Yeah, but thank you for the question.
0: Sorry, um, how far are we oh, away? Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. here. <laughs>
1: um,
0: h- how far you are we away from robots being uh, available to the general public to help in their houses or to help in el- elderly care? That there, there is a general role now. Is that two, three, five? That, you know, I appreciate it's not exact yes. size, but.
1: Um, so this form is difficult to say because I'm not involved in the um, mechatronics aspect of it. And I don't own a company who creates this, this uh, um, hardware aspect of it. But from what I can see is I showed one. Um, I can go back through the slide. Instead of trying to refer, I'll show you the, the image so it will be easier to talk. By MIT, for instance, it was this robot. Um, so this is more like a desktop robot. So, sort of, you know, uh, if you ever used Alexa, which is not a robot, it's more a chatbot, this is probably something like Alexa, but has a physical form and some behavior as well. So, this is already in the US market, I think, for 800 US dollars. So, it's accessible, it's possible. They will then market it in uh, Asia. So, I visited them a while ago, giving a talk there. Then, it will come to Europe. So, when it comes to Europe, I don't know how much it will be. But everyone should be able to buy and start working or using them. Of course, in this case, it is a desktop robot, so it's not going to move. It doesn't have legs and, and, you know, wheels to move around. But it can do certain movements. And when I was there, they demoed it. It does have this, uh, some sort of, again, anthropomorphic aspects. And it can also play things for you a bit like Alexa does, but has the visual aspect as well. So it has this sort of face or screen can take photos for you, can give you, read out loud for you some recipes, for instance. I think this is a very good start without really trying to deceive people in terms of uh, so few like looking robots coming to your house. (laughs) Uh, So I think that this probably is accessible soon. I don't know exactly when it will be available in Europe. But I think it's a very good step forward. And for the rest of them, uh, I wouldn't be able to say, because also now laws are changing as well. So, again, I can't really make a prediction.
0: (laughs) Uh, Yes? You talked about differences along equality lines, and you mentioned race and gender. But there's probably an even bigger issue, and that is the disability. Um, Traditionally, disabled people have lacked the technology and found it difficult to make the Mm catch-up. Whereas if disabled people could lead the technology, they could probably build in the accessibility mm-hmm. and make it more mainstream for everyone. Yes. So what's required here to make sure that disabled people can lead this technology rather than how to follow it?
1: I, yes, you're, you're, uh, thanks for pointing this out. There, I just put two of the gaps. There are many gaps, actually. And of course, disability is one. And just like in internet, it also became later available as accessibility. Um, probably in robotics would be similar as well. But even now, none of these gaps that I mentioned are being considered. So I would say, uh, similarly to you know gender gap, a lot of people are not aware of it. And not only robotics, it has been shown already how adverts in terms of highly paid jobs are targeted more towards white male and you know female would never get these <laughs> uh, adverts because of the way the automated uh, advertising is happening so just one example so the first thing is to make people aware about it and we need to talk about it and and then hopefully with uh, you know people can start coming up with some initiatives and and pushing that's what i meant with governance as well affecting governance it will be very difficult to just rely on creators of technology because sometimes they don't mean to discriminate as such. It's just they're not even thinking about it. So that, that's what I would say to be just like you brought into my attention now. So next time I will actually, if I give this talk again, I will change the slide and I will mention this too. But uh, for robotics, we are very at the very early stages of it to be able to even talk about. There are some early studies on gender-related perception but nothing really in terms of adaptability. At the moment, the robots that are available are not able to adapt to automatically sense, okay, this is your age, so it's not obviously gender is age as well, if it's a child versus elderly. Your gender, female versus male, or culture. I didn't, uh, you know, I said race, but even culture, because there you don't have only race, but traditions as well. Because obviously if I'm in England, even though I'm not English, I will actually abide with certain cultural rules. So all of these things are important. But because we have to start somewhere and gradually go with research, we can't include everything and make progress simultaneously. So I would say disability is really important as well and has to be considered, definitely.
0: Yeah. Well, my question was, what should, it to
1: the technology? So, so technology is
0: led by the people, so they they've, they've kind of built in their
1: needs. Yes, so I think initiatives are needed just like with what I mentioned with the rest as well. First of all, people should be aware that they have power, and then they need to lead somehow. So that, that's what I would say. Because if this comes to the attention of the government or the funders like EPSRC, they will have specialized calls. So at the moment, for instance, mental uh, well-being is really becoming very prominent because everyone is emphasizing this, you know, be it students or in general. So it's, it's becoming almost... Uh, you know one of the major problems around the world so because it has been emphasized so much funding bodies start having specific calls for well-being related projects so they will fund such projects and then in that case they can work with certain target user groups it would be similar also for for any really so th- so the disability would be one but uh, any i would say area specifically needing attention or or more research, so to say. That's what I can say.
0: Uh, can we mention uh, sociology and ethics in the way that sex robots should be banned?
1: <laughs> Oof, uh. <laughs> yes, uh, I, I didn't expect this question, but probably it uh, would come. I can't really say much about it, because I'm neither <laughs> a sociologist nor ethicist. Although we follow strict ethical guidelines for the research that uh, that we are doing I, I cannot really say much so it's not a topic that i'm very familiar with i haven't done research or investigation or much reading on it so can't say much um, yeah <laughs> yes 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 you you yes you can <laughs> Rosie would like to know if a robot could play tennis with her. (laughs) Um, As far as I know, there is not a specific robot to play tennis, but they can be taught uh, how to play tennis, because teaching robots certain specific tasks with rules is much easier than teaching them to be human-like. For instance, when we are interacting, the way we are interacting with all our you know, interpretation of social signals, social behavior. For instance, at the moment, how you were shy, you know, you didn't uh, pick the microphone for a robot. That would be difficult to interpret, that you are shy and you you would like your mom to to ask the question. But making them play tennis will be easier because there are certain rules. You can come up with a specific uh, measure of field. At the moment, they can play football, for instance, and there are RoboCups. I don't know if you heard about it. So they do play football, and they organize World Cups, robotic uh, football World Cups. So maybe you can check on the Internet some of these videos. Yeah, so it's quite cool. So if we can make them play football, tennis also is possible because you have a certain uh, field, there are certain rules, so this is easier to teach them than trying to understand when you're shy or when you don't want to talk. And <laughs> so that's much harder.